Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. A Minnesota representative who co-authored legislation to help sexual assault victims is now accused of misconduct himself. On Thursday, House leaders suspended Rod Hamilton, a Republican from Mountain Lake, as chair of the House Agriculture Finance Committee that he leads. Hamilton has denied the allegations, and so far, the St. Paul Police Department says there's not enough evidence to file criminal charges. The irony is this comes just as the Minnesota House put in place new procedures for handling allegations against its members. Republican Representative Rod Hamilton of Mountain Lake was on the House floor Thursday afternoon. Earlier in the day, he was secluded in his office for a couple hours after the allegations against him became public. I've already issued my statement, and at the advice of counsel, there will be no further comments. Hamilton repeated that not once. At the advice of counsel, I've already issued my statement, and there will be no further comments. But a half dozen times, he was responding to allegations by a 23-year-old woman who met with Hamilton at the state capitol in mid-April to talk about sexual assault prevention programs. But the woman tells Five Eyewitness News Hamilton invited the woman to stay on the couch in his apartment rather than drive home to Bemidji in a snowstorm. The woman says she agreed to stay there. She claims Hamilton stroked her ears, arms, face, and hands and kissed her on the cheek. She says she later, quote, cried myself to sleep. Hamilton says he was simply trying to offer comfort and compassion as she told him about being the survivor of a previous alleged sexual assault. In a written statement, Hamilton says, quote, I fully apologize for causing her additional pain and hardship, but says I categorically deny accusations of sexual assault. He would not expand on that statement when asked by reporters. You can't say anything other than that? I've already issued my statement, and at the advice of counsel, there will be no further comments. I spoke to Hamilton's accuser over the phone Thursday night about his apology. That really, to me, doesn't mean anything, because you're saying that, but you're, yet you're still denying um, the touches that were unwanted and that I didn't grant any sort of consent with it. So it's kind of, you can... You're apologizing, but you're not apologizing for anything specific. And so it's very, to me, it doesn't hold value. House Speaker Kurt Dowd says Hamilton is suspended from his chairmanship while a nonpartisan investigation takes place under new House rules for dealing with accusations. In addition to those new House policies, lawmakers are also considering a dramatic change in how sexual harassment cases are handled in state courts. A 1986 U.S. Supreme Court case created a standard that sexual harassment has to be severe or pervasive for a victim to win a case. Minnesota courts have mostly adopted that same standard, but a bill authored by House Majority Leader Joyce Pepin would direct them to stop using that standard. It just removes the language that says that the courts have been using that says that a case of sexual harassment must be severe or pervasive and says that the courts don't have to use that standard that's court created and uh, just needs to use the Minnesota state law that's under the Human Rights Act. And that bill has bipartisan support. The House is expected to vote on a tax bill this coming week. It's exceptionally complicated this year because of the federal tax bill passed by Congress in December. Minnesota has to conform state tax law to the new federal tax law that promised tax cuts for most Americans. 
If the state does not take action, it could result in tax increases for several hundred thousand state taxpayers. The House bill cuts the middle-tier income tax rate, increases the state's standard tax deduction, and increases the amount of property taxes that can be deducted from state taxes. We need to simplify the tax code. If we do nothing, it's extremely complicated. What our bill does in the House is it simplifies the tax code and it helps a lot of middle-income Minnesotans. That's the whole purpose of this exercise and what we wish to accomplish. The House Tax Committee heard public testimony Tuesday, both for and against the bill. Revenue Commissioner Cynthia Bowerly argued the Republican tax bill is tilted toward the business community. So we appreciate uh, the commonality that we see in many parts of this bill, Mr. Chairman. Unfortunately, this bill, like the tax bill at the federal level passed last year, provides more for businesses than for working Minnesota families in terms of rate cuts. Bowerly says the income tax cuts proposed by House Republicans would result in just a $6 tax cut for people making $40,000 and an average $338 cut for people making over $270,000. Senate Republicans have not released a full tax proposal yet, but they did introduce one proposal this week that calls for automatic income tax rate cuts whenever there's a budget surplus. More details are expected in the coming week. Governor Dayton announced new state action to address the opioid crisis. The new guidelines focus on when opioids should be prescribed and for how long. The biggest emphasis is on the several weeks after an injury or surgery. The governor says that's a critical time to monitor and prevent dependence on these powerful drugs. Communities like Alexandria, Redwood Falls, the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwa, and others were also selected for grants to create substance control teams. I know and I can tell you one prescription of an opioid can lead, may lead in the right individual to addiction, heroin, or death. Governor Dayton also urged the legislature to back the penny-a-pill proposal that would create a fee for pharmaceutical companies selling opioids in the state to help pay for prevention and support programs. A DFL state lawmaker spent a full 24 hours on the House floor this week protesting a lack of debate on gun control legislation at the Capitol. Representative Erin May Quaid of Apple Valley started her protest Tuesday telling stories of families affected by gun violence. May Quaid told us as a member of the minority party she doesn't sit on the public safety committee so this sit-in was about all she could do because these gun bills have not received a committee hearing. When a policy that is supported by 90% of Minnesotans can't make its way to the floor for a vote, there's a problem. I think leadership needs to take this really seriously and make sure that it comes to the floor for a vote. May Quaid left the House floor around noon Wednesday after her 24-hour demonstration. She says she received a lot of support from fellow lawmakers and gun violence prevention advocates. Meanwhile, a last-ditch effort to take up gun control bills in the Senate failed on Thursday. DFL Senator Ron Latz of St. Louis Park offered up two amendments during a broader budget debate. One would have allowed for an extreme risk protection order for someone considered a danger to themselves or others. The second would have extended criminal background checks. But a majority of senators voted for a motion that the bills were not relevant to the budget, and so they did not receive a vote. Omnibus bills are beginning to make their way to the House and Senate floors. One of the first to pass in the House was a finance bill for E-12 and higher education. It includes legislation prompted by five eyewitness news investigations into who can hold a teacher license. Eric Shalou has the details. 
But I think we are moving forward with a bill that I hope will be very strongly and bipartisanly supported. The education omnibus bill with policy and funding were up for debate Thursday afternoon that could bring major changes to Minnesota schools. It included Woodbury Republican Representative Kelly Fenton's legislation. Minnesota should be so much better than that. So for me, personally, as a former teacher and school administrator, I found it appalling. Fenton says the law needs to be changed in response to our reporting about who could get a teaching license. Last fall, we found 14 licensed teachers and a staff member who had sexual misconduct, violence, drugs, and theft in their past. The omnibus bill includes policy changes that would keep more people with criminal pasts from getting a teaching license. It's really important that uh, when parents send their children to school, that that individual that the child spends so much time with is thoroughly vetted. So parents can now have a peace of mind. Eric Shalhoub, 5 Eyewitness News. Also includes a requirement that the state teacher licensing board immediately report allegations of abuse in schools to police. It also includes more than $28 million for school safety improvements and money for mental health programs. It passed on a vote of 94 to 29. You can find our previous investigations that expose the problems that fueled some of the debate on this bill on our website at kstp.com. Up next, we continue our conversations with candidates running for Minnesota governor. We'll be joined by DFL candidate Erin Murphy. We'll discuss why she wants to lead our state and the issues she is focused on in her campaign. We continue our conversations this week with candidates running for governor of Minnesota. DFLer Aaron Murphy was the first candidate to jump into the race shortly after the 2016 elections wrapped up. Murphy has represented her House district in St. Paul since 2007 and served as House Majority Leader for two years. She also has a background in nursing. And Erin Murphy joins us in studio today to talk more about her campaign. Thanks for being here, Representative. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, I know it's been a, a long grind for you already because you got in uh, so early. Uh, just for starters, tell us why you want to be governor. I want to build Minnesota's future, and I want to do it with the people of Minnesota. You know, I've served 12 years uh, in the Minnesota House, and I spent much of that time all over the state with the people of Minnesota, learning what makes us tick and really getting to know Minnesotans, and they have been awesome teachers for me. And I think that's the best preparation to do this job. Minnesota faces some challenges, and right now our politics is too focused on winning the next election and beating the other side. And what's getting lost in that is Minnesota and Minnesotans' future. I want to build the future for Minnesota. I want to do it with the people of Minnesota. One of the issues you've uh, taken head-on uh, a number of times is gun control. Uh, it was, as you could see earlier in this broadcast, uh, front and center at the state capitol again this week, yet not much is happening on that front. You have been outspoken in calling for a variety of gun control measures. Tell us what you would support if you were governor. You know, I um, think it is time for us again to allow the Department of Health to do some research, uh, understanding the intersection between gun violence and gun ownership. Um, we shouldn't gag uh, research. We should understand that and think about this issue as a public health issue. It will guide us in our policy making. I support universal background checks and those extreme orders for protection. I also think it's time for us to ban um, semi-automatic we weapons like the AR-15, uh, which has been used in many mass shootings across the country. Uh, for me, it's important uh, that we keep our schools safe, our kids safe, and in Minnesota in particular. Uh, we are seeing suicide by gun violence far too often in the state. And from my perspective, as I have served in the legislature, the impediment that we face is the NRA and the gun lobby 
and it's time to move them away from this negotiation. And that stance might help you very well in the endorsing convention among your fellow DFLers, but uh, in the broader state of Minnesota, in particular in, in greater Minnesota, where there are a lot of people dedicated to gun rights and see any infringement on that as just the first step of many, how do you address those people? You know, there is no doubt uh, that there's a small and dedicated group of people that are very focused on their gun rights. But I talk with Minnesotans all over the state, and it is wrong to think that there are people in greater Minnesota who don't support a common sense, uh, common sense gun violence prevention package. I come from a family of hunters. I've been deer hunting. My husband is a deer hunter. Uh, I think it is wholly expected. And uh, when I talk with people across the state of Minnesota, there's a large pool of support for common sense solutions. And that's how we'll talk about them. Minnesotans come together around shared values. And we are a hunting state. That is a cultural thing in the state of Minnesota. And we can embrace that, the Second Amendment, and make sure our kids are safe in school. And the split that I have seen at the state capitol, it's not necessarily Republicans versus Democrats on this issue. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it goes beyond that. But you, you have people who either want really strong gun laws or people who say that's not going to save any lives. What we need to do is make schools safer, safer, enhance security, and put more money into mental health programs. Do you think we should do both, or is one or the other not going to suffice? I think when we think about issues as an either-or, uh, we lose the opportunity to really find a path forward. We should make sure our schools are safe. Um, we should make sure that there are places where kids can learn. So let's make sure that our schools are armed with enough books, school counselors, school nurses, teachers and um, education assistants in the classrooms. And I think we can embrace the Second Amendment and think about gun regulation in a way that protects people, especially if they're a danger for themselves or a risk to others. I think we can do both. And I have a lot of confidence in Minnesotans' ability to come around a, a, a set of solutions that can achieve that goal. Uh, embracing the cultural perspectives of Minnesotans. Now, with your nursing background, obviously, health care is something that you are very focused on, and you are also focused on thinking that we should go to a single-payer health care system, also known as universal health care. Uh, critics say that would be very expensive. Uh, granted, everybody would get covered, but how would you pay for that? So our current health care system is very, very expensive, and it doesn't deliver very good outcomes, and we spend more than almost any industrialized nation and, you know, I have been working on health care and health care coverage uh, since I began practicing nursing and uh, decidedly since I went to work for the Minnesota Nurses Association. I have not seen the kind of behavior coming out of the insurance companies, the drug companies, the pharmacy benefit managers, as, as I have seen since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And last session alone, when we gave $800 million to the insurance companies to stabilize the, in, in the, the individual market, and much of that money went to the for-profit subsidiaries in other states, I say we need a better deal for the people of Minnesota. Minnesotans are exceptionally worried about the high cost of their health care, and I think we can strike a better deal for them. Would it require significant tax increases to pay for such a program to cover everybody? So I think that uh, we have to look at where we're spending our money right now and analyze that, which I understand we're spending a fair amount of money contracting with health insurance companies and their subsidiaries. Let's look at that money. Let's redeploy it. Um, let's contract directly with the providers. Um, right now we contract with lots and lots of vendors. We contract with insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers. Let's contract directly with the providers and get a better deal. We'll get better outcomes for people, too. Now, in your work in the Minnesota House, you've been watching as the state is trying to figure out how to conform our tax law with the new federal tax law. You've seen the governor's plan. You've got an idea of what 
Republicans want to do. Where do you stand on that? In a Governor Murphy administration, what would the tax and spending structure look like? So I uh, came into the legislature when uh, Governor Plenty was in office, so I have served in a time uh, under a no-new tax pledge um, when we emptied out all our reserve accounts when we drove the budget into deficit. And I won't do that as the state's governor. We have to make sure we balance the budget. That's how we have the opportunity to plan for our future. You know, when I grew up, I used to go grocery shopping with my mom, and my job when we would grocery shop together was to make sure I kept account of everything that went into that basket so that when we got to the register, she had the cash in her pocket to pay for it uh, because she didn't want to ever be embarrassed not to have enough money, and that taught me the very, very important lesson of making sure you have the money you need to do the job that you need to do. Just a few seconds left. Uh, you've supported medical marijuana. Would you support recreational marijuana if a bill came to your desk? If it was fairly litigated and we talked about um, expunging records and making sure that uh, the legislature worked with law enforcement to make sure we got something onto my desk that I could sign, I would sign it. And finally, you are going to seek the endorsement, of course. Will you abide by it? Or if you do not get the endorsement, Will you not run in a primary? When I got into the race, I was very clear uh, that I plan to abide by the endorsement. I think it's important to be direct and honest with the voters. And the endorsement for me provides important infrastructure. So yes, I will abide by the endorsement. And I'll say this is no time to tippy-toe around in terms of our politics. It's time for us to be really direct about a vision for the people of Minnesota, and that's why I'm going to win this race. All right, Aaron Murphy, candidate for governor of Minnesota. Best of luck to you. Good to see you again, and we will see you again on the campaign trail very soon. Up next, Brian McClung and Catherine Tanucci will be here for political analysis. We'll be back in two minutes. And we're back. Time now for political analysis with Catherine Tanucci and Brian McClung. Thank you both for being here. Uh, let's talk about the tax conundrum at the state capitol. They've been trying to figure out, they've known since day one, uh, Brian, that they had to conform state tax law with the new federal tax law, and you, we all knew it was coming. It's going to go right down to the last minute of the last hour of the session. Yeah, it's just not that easy, right? And where we are right now is that the governor's plan and the Republican plans are very different. But the Republicans had their plan in committee last week, and there was some bipartisan support. Representative Paul Marquardt, who is the DFL lead on the tax committee, said there were a lot of things in here that, there that he supported. So hopefully there'll be some room to compromise and work through these things. I think for Minnesotans um, and for the Revenue Department, they would really like to see something pass and get signed into law this year because if you have to wait until January to try to do this in that tax year, it becomes very difficult. So the Republicans have a plan. It cuts taxes for 2.1 million Minnesotans. It has a second-tier income tax rate cut, which is the first rate cut in a couple of decades. So that's, I think that's a good plan, a good direction to move forward in. The governor's plan, of course, is very different. Uh, the governor's plan is also, I think, a lot more complicated than the Republican one. You can argue about which one is more fair, but uh, what chance does the governor's plan have in a Republican-controlled legislature? Well, that sounds very challenging for the governor's plan in the Republican-controlled legislature, and there are very clear differences between the two plans we've seen proposed. I think that now is the time to have the debate, though, and, and people should not be turned off by this being complicated or difficult. We need to engage. The, the reality is the Republicans' plan is going to cut taxes, for example, for a, a, a family making $40,000, 
cut taxes by $6. The governor's plan is much more focused on middle class families, much less focused on the Minnesota's wealthiest earners, the way the Republicans' uh, plan would benefit those people. And, you know, now's the time to have the debate. These are, it may be complicated, but there's, there's a lot to this that we need to discuss. And Senate Republicans have been dragging their feet. We heard a little bit about an automatic income tax cuts if there's a surplus, but we haven't gotten much more detail than that, and that's more uh, in, in the future, that really didn't have a lot to do with conformity. Yeah, and I think Senate Republicans are still kind of working through their details. Of course, they have a one-vote majority in the Senate, so they have to, you know, work with all of their members to get a bill to the floor that they can pass. I think, in in large part, I expect that they will align with kind of what House Republicans are doing. But keep in mind that Governor Dayton's plan would continue the sick tax, which is set to expire in 2019, and Governor Dayton's own revenue department says that as a result, his plan would be a tax increase for every income decile. So so I think Republicans are going to say we're obviously not with a $329 million surplus. We're not going to have tax increases across the board like Governor Dayton's plan would do. But the Dayton administration says that's a separate bill and it's not necessarily part of his tax. Republicans are trying reporting. to conflate these issues right now, but the reality is we're paying that right now. And what that, what that tax does is, is provide health care for low-income Minnesotans. And so if we were to, to repeal that and let that sunset next year as it's scheduled to, we would have to find another way to pay this. And, and, and that would be a huge hit to the general fund and very difficult to do otherwise. Let's talk about the issue of sexual harassment. It came up again at the Capitol uh, this week. It's been kind of on the back or front burner since the session started. But this Representative Rod Hamilton case, very strange. At a minimum, he was guilty of bad judgment. Uh, should he resign? Well, I don't know if he's going to resign or not. I mean, you know, he's in the story earlier here in the program, he's saying that he felt like what he did wasn't wrong. But I, even his version of the story that he expressed to the Star Tribune earlier in the week, right, like obviously bad judgment and not the way you're supposed to treat and behave uh, with people. So I, I don't know if he's going to resign. We're in that final month of the session, so it's hard to say how that would play out. And he's the first one to be treated under this new House policy. Are they making some progress in that area? I do hope so. I think this will be a test of that, and it's long overdue. I'm glad they have a new policy, and I hope that, um, that the appropriate actions come from it. All right, Catherine and Brian, thank you for being here. Congratulations on being one of the 50 most powerful people in the world. <laughs> Whatever or something, it was, yeah. As uh, judged by Minneapolis-St. Paul Business Magazine. Uh, thank you both for being here. Which Minnesota lawmaker makes the best hot dish the winner when we return? Minnesota's congressional members put their cooking, creativity, and state pride on display in their annual hot dish competition. Congressman Tom Emmer took the title this year with his hot dish of champions. The winner is chosen through a blind taste test. All of our senators and representatives came up with very creative names for their dishes. A few of them include 10,000 Island Cheeseburger Hot Dish Surprise, Gold Medal Curling Hot Dish, Spam Good Hot Dish, and Minnesota Miracle Whip Hot Dish. Wow, made me hungry. You can listen to episodes of that issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have links posted at KSTP.com. And that's all the time we have for now. Hope to see you back here again next week for another edition of Ad Issue.